The Obama administration is removing illegal immigrants from the country in record numbers, according to Greg Chen at the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Out of the 12 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S., roughly 400,000 are forced to leave the country every year. Uh, just be advised, the uh, target's girlfriend is on the move again. This is our target. Over the last couple of years, the Mexican government's implemented its own invisible wall of patrols and checkpoints across the southern border. That's doubled the number of deportations, acting as a useful filter for the U.S. further up. Migrants have also accused Mexican police and border agents of robbery, extortion, and even kidnapping. Once in Mexico, the first thing migrants hear is a warning from the U.S., repeated over a loudspeaker. What they don't know is that Mexico will end up returning most of them to Honduras. You decided to prioritize the deportation of critically ill kids, and I'm trying to figure out why. Hello, and welcome to Immigration and Democracy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Alsop. In this series, we'll bring you fresh knowledge and insights from the team at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard, led by our director, Professor Roberto Gonzalez, and featuring voices from the field. Join us as we get to know our neighbours through their stories. Today, we're talking about deportation. Part of the wider immigration control landscape that we've been exploring in this series, deportation is, in a nutshell, when a country takes measures to remove a foreign national from their territory. In its legal sense, it usually comes with some kind of bar on that person returning. But deportation is also sometimes used to refer to other ways of expelling someone from a community. Deportee, exile, expellee. This confounding term is tricky, even for us academics. And then you have the euphemisms, voluntary repatriation, return, family reunification. To understand deportation, it is very important to understand this whole variety of euphemisms that are being used to normalize, even to legitimize families' separations, and which constitute violations of human rights and even of international laws and international conventions. And for example, in the case of immigrant children who are being deported from Mexico, we use this euphemism like family reunification, reunificación familiar, or retorno asistido in Spanish would be like assisted return. And these concepts, these ideas are perfectly accepted by the law and by mechanisms, but are quite often used to name the unsolicited deportation of children to places of origin and homes from which many have fled. The term deportation blurs the narratives of those to whom it is variably and often highly politically applied. War criminals, yes, but also refugees fleeing persecution, dreamers studying at the nation's best colleges, most probably some nice guys you'd run into at your local bodega, or on a hike. I met Santos recently in his native Guatemala, where, for those of you who've been regularly tuning in for this podcast, will know I'm in lockdown, sitting out the COVID-19 pandemic. Santos had a few things to say himself about deportation. I sat down to speak to him, at a safe social distance, of course. 
He came to meet me holding proudly in his hands a small laminated card. It had the date 2007 and a photo next to a name that was not his. You were in a prison. That's not, is that this? Or this that's is, that's, that's the card. one. Yeah, it's... So talk me through this card that I've got in my hand now. So it's a South Texas Detention Complex Geo Group 2007. Yeah. And it has a photo of you. You haven't aged much. Yes. <laughs> um, level one, country Guatemala. So this is from that... Time yes, that that's the that's the card that they gave me for like, my ID in the in the detention center. Two thousand and seven. I love uh -huh. that you still have this, but you just found this. <laughs> you look like you're a bit pissed off. Yes, <laughs> very pissed off. So they detained you for a month, and then did you? They said to you, "We're going to send you back to Guatemala." Yes. How did they send you back? They put you on a plane, or in an airplane. So after that, I came here. And where did they take you? They took you to Guatemala City. Or? To Guatemala City. So. During the jail because I didn't have no money, and I asked one of the the guard, I want to make some money. So I just asked to work in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So they pay like a dollar a day. Yeah. So I work for six days, and they gave me six dollars. That's what I use to, to get back to the village. I always had this thought like. No, then this is not my life. I don't want to live this life with lack of uh, lots of things, with one room, like three by three. For the whole family. You have the family, like also in the same room, like we had like a firewood kitchen, mm -hmm. one bed mm -hmm. with like seven kids in one bed, plus my dad's. And, and our first house with my dad, it was like with Kanya. Do you, do you know the Kanya? It's like okay. uh, bamboo, oh, bamboo, the small ones. All would come from the corn. When they harvest the corn, it get dry. So we use that like like a, as a wall. Mm -hmm. But in the rain season, it get wet. So we get like we got water into the room. Sometimes our bed get wet. You know, so those uh, situations like made me think like I have to do something because I don't want to live like this. Also, I, I see my six brothers, what's the future for them? You're the eldest. Yes, um, yes. So, and then I just start working after uh, I finished the primary school and the middle school. And I decided to study tourism, become a tour guide, local tour guide. And I, Very good one, if I do yeah. say so much. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, and I really like it. I, I love to travel meeting people and learning about cultures. So after that, uh, I decided to try to get a visa because like that's, I think the United States is the closest country where we can go make some money. Yeah. And I uh, can get a better life because everyone talks about United States, like American dreams, mm -hmm. you can get anything you want. So, yeah, I decided, like, to go to the city, to do the, the paper. But I didn't have, they were asking me, like, bank account, like, properties, how much money, like, I have in the bank. I didn't have any, I just, I remember, I was, like, saving $200 in the bank account. And I loaned $3,000 to a friend of mine. He lives in the States, so he's a really good friend of mine. And he's one of the best lawyers in the States. And he knew my situation. I didn't make it with, like, in the right way with yeah. a visa. So, but what's the next step to take? 
So I talked to one of my friends, like he said, because he has one of his cousins in the States, he crossed the border. So that's the only way if you want to do it. Yeah, I want to do it. I have no choice. So I did it. I talked to some of the guy who takes people like the, they call coyotes. Mm -hmm. I talked to him and we arranged, they charge those days $7,000 or eight. Oof. I borrowed the money. I left my house that in, in, in like us. How do you say that? Like um, you had a debt. Yes. After that, I went. I remember we crossed, I went to the border in Tecunumang, mm -hmm. we crossed the border and then we stayed there one night in, in a hotel. Also in Mexico it's really hard to cross yeah. as illegal and we have to like avoid the, the checkpoint. Mm -hmm. Like during the night we just walk by the little path up the hills. But that's the thing, I think someone saw us getting at the hotel, they call off the police and they kidnap us Oof. with KA-47. They took everything. We had some money like to, to, to make it to Mexico City. They took everything and they like, yeah, they had us in one room for a week until we paid like $600. We had to call and... Go back home. Yeah, call back home and we didn't have that money and like, okay. And then after that, we get to Veracruz. The same thing. Cops, they take us down in, in the bus in the middle of the night. The same thing. They ask us for like 300 to 200 dollars, like 3,000 pesos, something like that. So it wasn't easy. I think someone saw us and called the patrol border. And when we got out the bushes, they already there like with like 10, uh, And when 15. you saw them, did you think, oh, they're gonna send me back? Or yes, that's what I should. That's because I knew they like gonna deport us. You don't supposed to do this. You're like a criminal and doing this and that. So they brought us to the jail and they lock us for a month. After that, they sent me back. Like what does deportation look like? Like what it, they just like pick you. This is the day you you leave. They tell you like one day before, and you just wait and, and, and they choose you. They call you by your name and they say. I just made up that name. Yeah. So because when they like detain us, mm -hmm. I don't want to use my name yeah. because I knew like I want to go back or something. So I just made up a name like this and and, and that. So I use that name. And so I guess this was the first time you were on an aeroplane. First time. First time in jail and first time everything I was. They got us in with chain. Handcuffs. Did, yeah, handcuffs, everything, and, and like, like a criminal. So I was laughing. This is the thing, like... <laughs> like could this people is, see you? Yeah, yeah. People in the airport could see you, or was it uh, like private? Yeah, it's a private okay. airplane, but when we got to the city, Guatemala city, yeah, they got the international airport from Guatemala, so they saw us like... I was laughing because this is like... <laughs> I'm not a criminal, I just was trying to make my dream, get some work, that's all, and I ended up in, in, in a jail. So after I lost the seven, eight thousand dollars, I couldn't sleep for two weeks thinking about how I'm gonna <laughs> pay that money. There is no way to pay eight thousand dollars here. So after two weeks, I decided to go back. Mm -hmm. 
So one of my friends called me like, you made it, you, alre you already were here. So come back again and we figure out how we're going to do for the money. And I made to the States. Dream come true? Yes. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it wasn't easy because I didn't know the language. What kind of work you did? I started working at first in, in, in construction. I met a guy from Carolina del Norte, North Carolina, and uh, he told me how to install sheetrock and mud and flood and paint it. So I worked with him for two years in construction. So that's how it started. Most when the people like white people, most in Texas, they really patriot. They really, yeah, they really defended the, the land and, and they started conversation with my boss, like, Oh, those illegals, they just come to, to take our jobs and this, I hear that. And then we start laughing. After my boss told us this lady, she's against immigrants, and, but she doesn't know you guys <laughs> working for her. Like, we just start laughing. I get used to it. When I start, like, understanding, I know, I know I broke the law, but I was trying to do it in the right way. We're not just also taking the people jobs, we do the hard jobs. I break concrete, tearing walls down like roofing and I never, never saw a white guy breaking concrete, like carrying like two, two hundred pounds in, in the back, like climbing on a ladder, like I never saw one. Like straight, we work like 10 to 12 or 14 hours a day. I, I understand that they land, it's like, it's like I told her. I feel the same. I really understand you. If I were in my house and you came to me with no permission, I would feel the same. But also, if you tell me your situation, I would understand you. Why are you trying to cross my house, you know? If you tell me, I can let you open the door and come to my house and we can well, share something. That's good, because you have a very yeah, nice yeah. house. So, you so know, that's good for me to know. Yeah, so that's that thing. It's the situation that push people doing that. It's not nice to see one of your family hungry and you don't have nothing to give them. I think for me that's a crime. I don't respect borders. That's the truth. I'm the one who loves freedom. It doesn't matter where you come from. Santos liked his life in the US. He made friends, he settled in Texas, and when there were hurricanes in the local community, he gave relief for citizens to help them rebuild their houses. A lot of people who didn't have insurance, flood insurance, they didn't have money to fix their house. So we went with six friends of mine because we were good in construction. We've been doing that for 10 years. So we just like, hey, we, we should do something to help the people who doesn't have... These are US. Yes, they were like US. Wow. Like one of the ladies, she works in the, the Houston uh, HPD department. HPD is... HP, like Houston Police Department. Uh -huh. So she's been working there for 25 years. She's an old lady and, and, and one of my friends called me. He's a Mexican. Uh, she she knows her for years, so like Santos, could you like give me a hand? I have one of my friends. She doesn't have like insurance flood, and uh, she just bought the house, and she got flood, and, and she lost everything. I went to see it like a big house, so and then like yeah, yeah, we started helping her, and she was really appreciated. And, and yeah, we don't have documents, so you can arrest us. She just start laughing. <laughs> If you haven't got it, Santos is a warm and likeable guy. 
Even members of the local police, on two occasions, gave him their personal cards, telling him, if you ever get in trouble, call us. For Santos, it wasn't like he'd committed a crime. In fact, the way he spoke about his actions, he framed it as a kind of civil disobedience. So there's a difference between somebody who's breaking into your house to steal stuff and cause chaos, and someone who's really in need. For Santos, this is the essence of deportation. He doesn't think that deportation should be stopped. It's just a question of who you deport, how you apply it, who's in and who's out. I was especially interested in Santos' story, as I'm part of an international research group on deportation and what life looks like for those who are deported. In our work, we look at deportation in its broadest sense, as an immigration control measure and as a lived experience. Deportation can happen to people who've spent their whole lives in the US, and it's something that can equally befall people at the border, where they may be stopped, detained, and forcibly returned whence they supposedly came. As we'll see in today's episode, the crime that leads someone to be deported may be the very fact of having entered the US or having lived in the US without documents in and of itself. I had a conversation with colleagues working in the US, Guatemala and Mexico about deportation in the US in the past and present. What we do and don't know about this very charged and poorly understood term and what, if any, is the place of deportation in our democracies? The international team I assembled to discuss the topic includes Jeremy Slack, Valentina Glockner-Fagetti, Walter Flores and Ricardo Muniz-Trejo. Jeremy Slack is Associate Professor of Geography in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Texas, El Paso. His most recent book has a hell of a title, Deported to Death, How Drug Violence is Changing Migration on the U.S.-Mexico Border. Valentina Glockner-Fagetti is a Mexican anthropologist and author of De la Montaña a la Frontera, From the Mountain to the Border. She's affiliated with the Child Research Observatory at El Colegio de Sonora in Hermosillo, Mexico, and is a founding member of the Colectiva Infancias, a network of researchers specialized in social studies of children and migration in the global south. Walter Flores is a social scientist and human rights advocate with over 25 years of experience. He's also director of the Center for the Study of Equity and Governance in Health Systems, a Guatemalan civil society organization. And last, but by no means least, Ricardo Muniz-Trejo is an MSc student in global migration at the University College London. Ricardo spent the last four years working in immigrant shelters in Nuevo León, Mexico. So welcome team! I want to kick us off with the million dollar question. What is deportation? So deportation, it's a tricky concept because it doesn't really fit well with the legal definitions of removing people. And so we often get tripped up on a lot of these different legalistic definitions of repatriation, removal. But deportation, you know, is really something that best describes this physical act of forcibly removing someone from the country. So this physically violent process of taking someone in custody and returning them to a country that may nominally be their home, more and more often we're seeing deportations or deportation type scenarios to third countries. But this is the process that we're really interested in, a better understanding, not just from the legal perspective, but also from these social situations of violence that's created by this forced movement. And what about the origins of the term deportation? I believe the first cases of deportation as such in the US were in our Harvard-based state of Massachusetts, with the passing of the 1794 state law, which permitted the deportation of mostly Irish migrants. And then, of course, we had the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which became the first law to demand the exclusion and deportation of a particular racial group. But where did we go from there? 
I know it's something that's been back and forth as part and parcel of the fairly recent history of the United States engaging in policing immigration. You know, we have the Chinese Exclusion Act, we have this kind of late 1800s, this idea of who gets to pick and choose what type of people are allowed inside of the country. Right. And so within that, we see several large upheavals, like what was called the repatriation at the time, which was rounding up Mexican-Americans and returning them to Mexico, many of them U.S. citizens in the 1930s. This was an anti-depression, uh, let's blame people that don't look like us for economic problems, this classic story. And so it's been part and parcel of these different processes. It is important to think about deportation as an ongoing process that is being building upon many, many years and that is growing like even more complex. We have to look at the different nuances uh, within the concept of and, and within the phenomenon and the social process and legal process of deportation, because it's not the same to speak about someone being deported after he or she has been waiting lawfully to ask for asylum. It's not the same to talk about an accompanied child or a teenager to be deported after trying for many times to cross the border, maybe because he or she is fleeing from forced recruitment. And it's not the same to think about deportation from people who have been living in the U.S. for a long, long time. Deportation, of course, is strongly linked with immigration dynamics and with how the border and immigration politics and policies have been getting tougher and have been leaning towards criminalizing free movement and free immigration. So we have to take all these into account. So deportation is primarily a deterrent, part of a broader message that some people are welcome in the country and others are not. My experience interviewing migrants in Mexico, when I used to ask them why they have been deported from the United States, a common answer that I used to receive was, well, we were deported because the United States do not want us to access to their health care, to their jobs, to their education, because we look different, because we don't speak the same language, because we are undocumented, because we are ignorant. And perhaps this perception is simplistic, and of course it deserves more research, but I think that it is not so far away from what academics in migration studies have understood as the roots for deportation, which is basically nation states being against the access from certain migrants to certain goods and resources that are considered as national privileges. Because this group of migrants threaten the welfare state of the citizens that belong to the inside of the borders of these nation states. Of course, there is no deportation without detention, right? People in the academy and the journalism call the border industrialization complex, which signals the links between this policy, immigration, uh, enforcing authorities, putting a lot of effort detaining people instead of creating different systems for binational or transnational collaboration and movement of people. So it's to signal the link with even private corporate industry gaining profit by detaining people and deporting people instead of creating these other possibilities for immigration policy. Who's profiting from this? So who are the actors who are involved in that detention and the actual deportation? 
There's the private corporations receiving government funding for having people detained in their facilities. I will talk about the Mexican case. When the migrant caravans were transiting through Mexico, even private airlines were having huge profits by collaborating with the government to deport people. It's a whole range of actors and institutions, like even government shelters or certain departments in federal state in Mexico have been benefiting from donations from private corporations or foundations in the U.S. who are willing to donate money to increase the capacity of the Mexican government to detain and deport people before they get to the U.S. So it's a huge complex of uh, network of actors benefiting from this. This as you've called it, the migration industrial complex is mm-hmm. is obviously something that is a global phenomenon. And so increasingly since the age of Obama, we've seen that Mexico has been more and more involved in stopping people and deporting people who are heading to the United States. And now we're seeing increasingly that this includes children. Perhaps, Jeremy, you could just give us a bit of an overview of these different corridors. Is there some kind of correlation between the deportation of people from the United States to Mexico and the deportation of people from Mexico to somewhere else? Who is being deported from where to where and why? And what are the linkages between these different forced removals? It's really important to understand that part of the United States strategy to controlling immigration, especially as we are moving into an era of, quote unquote, legal migration, right? Seeking asylum is 100 percent a legal migration process. This is in the United States law. It's an international law. It doesn't matter if you cross between ports of entry. This is a legal process. So in order to prevent people from applying for asylum, Mexico and the U.S. have collaborated quite a bit in the process of convincing Mexico to increase its anti-immigrant activities. So we see these discussions about how Mexico is engaging in a parallel process of militarization of the border, as well as supporting the United States in these processes, such as the Migrant Protection Protocol, where the United States sends asylum seekers back to Mexico to wait for their asylum claims to be adjudicated. And these are people from all over the place, all throughout Latin America, all Spanish-speaking countries, as well as Brazil, are included in that program. Another piece to this that's really important is that Mexico and the United States have always had a very strained relationship in terms of migration. Part of the process that has always happened in terms of United States border enforcement is it was about moving people back to Mexico very quickly apprehending people, processing them within a day or so, and then removing them to Mexico. This was kind of this game that's been called this cat and mouse game, this sort of voluntary removal complex that scholars have talked about. But this is something that also affects children from Mexico as well in the United States. Mexican children who cross into the United States are also removed very quickly. There are certain rules in terms of how long they're allowed to be in U.S. custody without seeing the consulate. But we recently finished a study where we did surveys of about 100 recently repatriated Mexican miners who arrived in Mexico, both in Nogales and in Matamoros. And we found that frequently claims for asylum, claims of fear, were not being acknowledged by U.S. authorities. And a lot of it is because they just want to get rid of people very quickly. There's a stigma around children for working for smugglers. And we see this, these processes not being honored in terms of asylum. So a lot of these different corridors of who's coming from where have really collided with this asylum system that we see the United States actively dismantling. 
both in terms of not allowing people to come here by pushing Mexico and encouraging Mexico to be more brutal, but also just knocking away at the different avenues people have to win asylum claims. So you have people, say, who might have come from Honduras or El Salvador, who passed through Mexico on their way to the U.S., they've arrived in the U.S., and they're deported to Mexico. To somebody who isn't familiar with that, with the whole context of this immigration landscape, that might seem very, very strange indeed. You know, this is a fairly new program, right? This is what's called the Migrant Protection Protocol very Orwellian name. It's also known as Remain in Mexico. And so essentially what this is, is that people arrive in the United States and apply for asylum, but then they're sent back to Mexico. It's working its way through the courts. It's certainly been challenged. You know, I was working on a couple of the different lawsuits against it. And basically the rationale that the judges have taken in terms of letting this program proceed is that Mexico hasn't objected. Mexico has generally accepted that the United States can return people from other countries over the border back from the United States. And this is an extremely dangerous and harmful program. People have to show up at the port of entry every morning at about four or five in the morning to present themselves for court. They spend about 12 hours there. They have to bring children. They have to bring their entire family. Sometimes courts are canceled and they're sent back. There's about 60,000 people put into this program, and many of them are living in extremely precarious situations along the U.S.-Mexico border. Many people have been killed. Human Rights Watch has documented about 1,000 cases of violence against people in MPP. Um, And these are just through media reports, people that have been murdered, people that have been kidnapped, rapes. And we see that a lot of what the United States is doing with this is really trying to use this removal, this bottling people up along the border as a way to expose them to criminal violence and therefore make them uh, withdraw their petitions for asylum. And so it really is this attack at the very root of asylum, which is essentially that if someone is on U.S. soil, inside the country, we don't send them back to die. And this is just basically undermining that entire system from its basic core values. The image that you're giving us of what a person who experiences deportation looks like is pretty different to the kind of criminal idea that we get from the media and from listening to the president. How did that happen? How did we get mixed up between these different categories of people? And can we put this label deportees or deportation to define what seems to be an incredibly diverse and complicated phenomenon. The important thing to understand is that there's still this stigma around deportation and removal that is a holdover from the 1980s and early 1990s, that once you cross the United States, it would be very hard to be taken out of the United States. You cross the border, that's the difficult part. You get there, you live, you're basically fine. In the mid-1990s, when they passed IRA-IRA, it became much easier to remove people who had both documents and people without documents for criminal infractions. We created a whole category of crimes only for immigrants. This is the creation of the aggravated felony, which sounds much more serious than a regular felony, but in reality, it is any combination of misdemeanors that can lead to about a year sentence in prison. So we created this different parallel set of legal standards for people in the United States, immigrants, people with visas to be removed. And we've increasingly started using the police to apprehend people to basically do jailhouse checks as being the main way that people are removed from the United States. And this can be extremely minor types of criminal infractions, such as driving without a license, 
drunk driving, of course. And if we see the crimes that deportees are charged with, the biggest category of crime is immigration crime which is part of the parallel process we've done of criminalizing immigration, charging people with illegal entry and illegal re-entry. So this is the mechanism by which we've given a criminal record to hundreds of thousands of people for crossing the border, something that really used to be treated as an administrative violation because immigration law is administrative law, it's not criminal, right? So. And could you just explain, you mentioned IRA-IRA, what is that? Yeah, this is the Illegal Immigration Reform and Responsibility Act It basically shut the door on any access to welfare rights. Even though there's this perception that immigrants get welfare, that's even repeated by a lot of immigrants as why they think that people don't like them, that you can. It was basically a response to the amnesty that came about 10 years prior. This process that we've gone through in terms of creating laws that have made it harder to immigrate to the United States and limited their access to lots of different types of services here which notably has kind of increased under Donald Trump to the idea that anyone who applies for public service can't become a resident or a citizen. This is the public charge uh, debate. Yes. The overall theme for these podcasts and for this series is immigration and democracy. Talking to you all now, it seems to me that there are two main threads that are relevant to that discussion when it comes to deportation. The first of which is this question of what's called in refugee law non-refoulement, so this principle of not sending people who are fleeing persecution back to harm. And then on the other hand, you have the situation of people who have grown up in the United States. They've had their formative years there. To cite the political philosopher Joseph Karens, they've developed time and tides, which gives them a certain sense of belonging in the United States. Again, I'm just led back to this question of, is it helpful to use the word deportation to describe these two very different phenomena? I mean, I would say that with Remain in Mexico, probably not, right? I think the one thing about deportation that I'd like to stress is that there's a sense of finality to it. It is an end. It is an expulsion. Remain in Mexico does put us in this weird place where it is creating a limbo because you're removed, but you're not. You have to wait at the border. You have to present that you're going to be coming back and forth and you're awaiting this sort of final decision, which most people lose in the migrant protection protocols. They have a much higher denial rate of asylum claims than the regular asylum courts. So we do see that there are some differences in it. You know, we get into a lot of other scenarios as well, such as voluntary repatriation, which doesn't carry as significant a penalty if you cross the border again. Formal deportations carry a ban of 5, 10, 20 years for being able to apply for any type of immigration visa. There's a huge variety in the terms of how people removed, right? And so I think some of them are easily summed up under deportation, and some of them aren't. I think that overall, the term deportation, it's a bit... Uh small for what actually can happen in practice. Most of the time what I have seen in practice is that some migrants decide to go back to their countries, not because they have been trapped by some authorities, but they are trapped by a context in which they don't have uh, the opportunities to perform or to do what they expect by arriving to these countries of destination. So, for example, by not providing any type of rights or access to health care or access to education, or by being harassed by police, or by being exposed to uh, violent drug cartels, or whatever, 
just by not providing adequate security or adequate access to rights, it's also a way of pushing them to go back to their countries. And perhaps this is not understood as deportation, but in practical terms, it is a forced expulsion. <laughs> deportation can have different consequences depending on different individual factors, such as gender, age, or even different scenarios. Like for example, on, on where these migrants are being deported or where are the resources that they have. As an example, a case that I saw in the shelter where I used to work, it was a 60-year-old Mexican man who had been deported from the U.S. For him, it was a whole challenge to even being deported to a country that he left 40 years before. And Mexico has changed a lot, of course, in those 40 years. He didn't even have any documents or any resources. He didn't even have family. His only resource was to go to a migrant shelter and ask for help and to see if someone could hire them as a construction worker. But for him, it was very challenging because not having any Mexican documents and being old, it's something that was playing against his well-being, was something that, of course, was distressing him, was causing a lot of anxiety. For others, for example, uh, deportation can mean going again through the whole process of trying to enter the United States. It is really common to see people in these shelters who have been trying to enter the United States or have been entering the United States for uh, three times. But for them, trying again is an option because they are young enough to endure this whole migratory process, endure this whole journey. But also it means that they have to risk their lives again. They have to depend again on, on the many resources that shelters offer or in the many resources that the government offered, which are not always something that they can be sure that they will receive. There are so many characteristics that will shape the trajectories of migrants after deportation. It's really interesting to hear about this after deportation story the narratives that you hear on the TV and the radio. It's about the migrant journey. We're very fascinated in why people leave and what is that experience like of crossing the border. And this question of, well, what happens if it doesn't work out or if it does work out, but then, you know, something happens and you are picked up and returned. That story of the return is something that we hear about less in popular narratives. Walter, I wonder if you could just give us a bit of context. Why do people leave and head to the U.S.? And what happens to people who are returned? I think first we need to understand the deportation is a, is a non-voluntary negative event. And this event will generate different kinds of life experiences for people. Some of them, it was a very unpleasant, sad and shaming experience. But we also have examples of cases in which the life experience was very violent, with extreme rights violation, very traumatizing. We often do not get the information, why are people taking this risk? What media report is just the number of deportees, whether it's increasing or decreasing, but there is very little effort just to follow the stories or even a few stories. So why are people risking, even if they hear that for some of them, the experience can be very violent and traumatizing, why are they doing this? And usually when you hear the stories of why people are doing it, it's because either they are fleeing from a very violent environment in which it is combined with extreme poverty, but extreme poverty that do not offer any opportunities for a life with dignity and a situation of crime, violence, that they need to flee those places. 
So when the migration doesn't work and they are usually deported to the same areas where they are fleeing from, they are again exposed to that extreme violent environment that they were trying to flee. In many cases, the effect of coming back, it may be worse or present them with higher risk than before. One of the major gaps that we have at the moment is to document better and to understand better why are people fleeing and not just to concentrate on the numbers of deportees, but rather to understand the life stories, the life events of all these different people so we can understand why is any human being taking this kind of risk to try to leave one place and to reach another place. And Walter, you're from Guatemala, where I'm currently recording this podcast. And in the current context of COVID, there's been a lot of media attention on the kind of politics around deportation during this period. And the fact that a number of people who have been deported from the United States to Guatemala have tested positive for the virus, that there is now a stigma arising from this. I wonder if you could comment on that and perhaps say something about the politicization of deportation. run by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Service have brought back dozens of migrants that were infected by the virus in detention centers in Guatemala, the the first cases of infected people were rich people having holidays in Europe that came back to Guatemala. They went to a private hospital and because they have connections, so the information was really not made public, only just uh, numbers. But as soon as the cases from the deportees that came with uh, positive cases from the U.S., then the media started to report that because there are high number of cases in the U.S. and Mexico, and because the deportees are being sent back from Mexico, but mostly the U.S., then all Guatemala would get infected because of the deportees. But they were not mentioning that, no, they were the first cases were not even the deportees, were the rich people. And these rich people, their own industries and factories, they actually infected their own workers because they went back to their own factories. But all that information remained like they just pushed aside. And the media made a big effort of presenting that we are getting infected because of the deportees, of the migrants that, that were deported, and now becoming infected and especially to rural communities where many of these migrants belong to, with a very few information in context, the information that the rural communities get is that, okay, there is a very serious disease that is being transmitted by the deportees. And the deportees is my neighbor or is people that I know from another community. So this is creating a very tense and conflictive relationships, not only in the cities or areas, but also in very rural areas where many of the deportees are going to. All of this started because of the media not wanted to make explicit or to report that the first cases came from rich people holiday, but concentrated on using a very easy target, which was the Portis migrants. Among the mobile, if you like, it's almost like deportees are a kind of very, very low class of people on the move. It's almost like we do not want to hear what is happening, especially to the majority of people within the Portis concept. My main concern is what happened when the deportation is for people that were fleeing life-threatening context, that by saying back, by being deported to the same context, nothing has been done in terms of resolving or attempting to resolve the context or the situation that that person was fleeing from. When the deportation is understood as one, this person is deported and removed, 
that since the case is closed, then we do not have a way to follow up and see what happened to these people, what happened to the life situation that they were fleeing from. If they were fleeing from a life-threatening situation, very likely they may try to do it again just by deporting people, but not really caring or trying to understand or help the situation they're flying from, they are going to do it again unless that context, it is resolved or the life-threatening situation, it is improved. I think that's a really great point. At least for me, it speaks to one of the fundamental things that we do not know, which is what happens to people who are denied asylum, right? We have no idea in this country what the ultimate result of denying people asylum is. Essentially, how many people are being killed, how many people are experiencing torture and other issues that should be protected under an reformant. And I think that this is this glaring gap, both in things that are very hard to learn, but also something that scholars have not sufficiently addressed. And for our non-refugee lawyers listening, non-refoulement is this fundamental principle of human rights and refugee law that says anybody has the right to go to another country if they don't feel safe in the country they've come from and claim asylum and ask for help. So if you're deporting people and not following what happens to them, how do you know whether they're being returned to harm or not? How do you know whether it's a human rights abuse or not? This is where our project, this work on documenting what happens after deportation, becomes so important because the United States government can say, well, it's safe to claim asylum in Mexico, it's safe to claim asylum in Guatemala, so there's no reason for you to come to the US. And in sending you back, we're not deporting you to harm. We're not breaching this human rights rule of non-refoulement. But how do we even know if that's the case unless we see what happens after deportation? All of the voices that you're hearing today have joined us because I'm part of an international project called Life Facing Deportation. We initially came together to look at what life was like for people after deportation, something we've talked a lot about in today's conversation. We changed the title of our collaborative to reflect the magnitude and depth of deportation, something that is, as Valentina said, a continuous process. In particular now, we're looking at the US in relation to Mexico and Guatemala, but we're situating this work in relation to other processes across the globe of outsourcing immigration controls and deportation powers to countries of transit. Indonesia in relation to Australia. Libya and Turkey in relation to Europe. My colleagues and I, we're coming at this project from the UK, the US, Mexico, Guatemala. Could you speak to the value of this international and comparative aspect, especially in the context of looking at a cross-border issue like deportation? This is a really impressive project with a lot of different moving parts with people from many different parts of the world, really bringing together a lot of expertise to try and understand these questions better. I do think that we are in a bit of a kind of a surreal moment in terms of really trying to be introspective and think about how do we conduct research in social sciences during this period when we're dealing with a pandemic and we're dealing with extreme kind of rise of anti-immigrant policies that are really pushing this immigration system to the brink of collapse. One of the fundamental reasons why we don't know a lot of these things is because they're really hard to do. They're complicated. I think that one of the things, too, is that we are often become methodological purists in the sense that we conduct research that fits our methodological purview. And a lot of times the big questions often fall outside of those. So to really know what happens to people after removal in a big way, we need quantitative work, which is very hard. I've done a lot of post-deportation surveys, ethnographies, and shelters over the years, and you get a sense for different snapshots of that. 
but really conducting something like a longitudinal study of people who've been deported is a big undertaking. And hopefully we can lay the groundwork and move towards something like that. I've certainly found myself having moved to the US a year ago now in my academic work. I sometimes find that the academy can be quite US-centric and not necessarily it's an ideological leaning, but also there's just sometimes feels like there's so much to be done and to look at in the US that sometimes these global comparisons can fall by the wayside. What's really important to me about it is that it is so hard to see the big picture and to see every aspect of the journey. I think so much, you know, how we approach research, who we talk to at what moment they're in really is going to shape how we view migration, right? You know, a lot of the conversations we've had here are really important in the sense of why do people risk their lives going through things such as kidnapping, being extorted, the dangers of the desert, the mistreatment by authorities in the United States. Well, it's worth it. Right. That's the short answer for why people do it. And I think what we have here by bringing together so many people from different places is a real ability to see these different facets of this extraordinarily complex migratory journey. For too long, scholars, particularly in the United States, have really focused on migration as a Mexican phenomenon in the United States and really honed in far too much on this prevention through deterrence narrative, this funnel effect which was really something that came about in the 1990s as the Border Patrol pushed people into dangerous areas of the desert. And there are so many books written about that. But what we have now is an immigration system that is far more complicated, with people coming and engaging in many different types of immigration that do not fit within that narrative whatsoever. Yes, it's still a dangerous journey and people still die, but we need to do something much more complicated to understand what's really going on. I think this project is fabulous because it pulls together so many people from across the globe who really have the ability to talk about these consequences of deportation in a new way, to really connect these different spheres that we are all in just based on our geography about where we study and who we talk to. I think that's what's really exciting to me about this project. And just to add to what Jeremy already explained, I think this project is going to be very important because we are going to try to build on these life stories that we have been talking about. Instead of just being an, a number on a statistics of deportee, try and understand what is the life experience of people being deported, what happened once they return. That's one of the major gaps that we have at the moment. If we are able to build and to communicate those life stories, I think we can even produce better arguments for people that are facing a judge asking for refugee because we are able to transmit and say, look, at this is what people are fleeing from. What we are doing through this international collaboration is also giving legitimacy to understand what's happening to people that have been deported. In general, most of the interest with the portier is just to come up with data or to show a few stories that had to do with issues of crime, that had to do with issues of somebody that is living in a shameful situation because of being deported. And you even have a few journalists who want to work with this issue because it's not really a nice issue. And in my view, with the increasing inequality, not only within countries, but also at the global level, migration across countries and continents will continue increasing, even despite COVID-19, it will continue increasing. And eventually, we will have to understand that this is a very serious social 
problem that it is threatening not only the countries in terms of the borders, but it's actually it's affecting the well-being of population, not only in rich countries, but also in poor countries where most of the migrants come from. For me, a very significant aspect of this project is to really put together international analysis of immigration policies and regimes with life experiences of the people who are directly experiencing these policies. It's also a matter of recovering the narratives by those who have lived through these deportation and detention regimes. It is really, really important that this project explores and gives us the opportunity to know more about what happens with children and with young people once they are being detained and processed to be deported. What are their strategies, their understandings, of course, their resilience and emotional and social tools they have in their power to display, to confront these situations? Because for them, being caught, being detained is almost like part of the process. The exact moment they are being detained, they know that they are going to try to cross the border for a second or even a third time. We also have to explore that and, of course, explore all the mechanisms by which we are normalizing deportation in context where it's a clear violation of international laws, human rights conventions, and even national laws protecting children and youth in Mexico. A key part of this growing role of Mexico as this transit country in stopping people, detaining them and deporting them to other countries whence they've come is this whole policy is premised on the idea that Mexico is in a position to support the human rights of those individuals and that includes allowing them to seek asylum safely. So we need to know that whether people are deported to Mexico, whether they're deported from Mexico to El Salvador or Guatemala or Honduras, have they had a fair chance? If they're fleeing danger, have they had a fair chance to claim asylum, to seek protection? And if we don't know what happens after they're deported, if we don't talk to people, how do we even know? And then you have individuals like Santos, who we spoke to at the beginning of this episode, who flee for economic reasons, which bring their own individual arguments. There's an argument that in some ways excluding people from a community is the parallel of including people. So if we think about Obama's immigration legacy, we might think about the 800,000 undocumented young people who were granted leave to pursue their dreams, something we've discussed in a previous episode of this podcast. And yet some have said that the price of that progressive policy was a big crackdown through deportation. Indeed, immigrant rights groups have rightly called Obama the deporter-in-chief, Others have criticised Trump for not deporting people as much as Obama. Over 3 million people were deported when Obama was president. On paper, his deportation turn was about stopping people at the border and locating and removing hardened criminals. But doubt has rightly been cast on how true to reality that intention was. We know now that many of those millions were deported for minor crimes, including crimes related to the process of irregular migration in itself. So if we have somebody who for many represents a progressive idea of US democracy and immigration, and they're deporting people in the millions, my question to you is, could you imagine a United States where deportation and removal as a form of governance would be redundant? Yes, I think I could. I, 
I can see a future for the United States where people's belonging is predicated on their connections to the community, who they are, where they live, how they relate to this place, right? I'm a geographer by training. And so those connections to space and place are extremely important. It's actually not a huge shift to prioritize that. And instead of how we have it now, which is that people have to make the case, the burden of proof is on them to prove that they shouldn't be removed. If we switch that around and make it that the burden is on the state to prove that someone can be removed without harming people, that would be a huge change and it would definitely fundamentally undermine this deportation complex that we've built. I really want to believe and to close the conversation with a more optimistic note, right? Like, I certainly see that what Jeremy has said, it's truly possible. I just don't see how are we going to arrive at that point. And at this moment, it is quite difficult, right, to see the specific ways we're going to get there. I don't really think that deportation per se should disappear completely because... We have had cases of military people that committed gross human rights violations during the Guatemalan Civil War that fled to the U.S., become U.S. citizens, and were living in hide here for so many years. But once the legal case in Guatemala were brought up and it was demonstrated that they were living in hiding here, then we have several cases that U.S. deported those people because they committed human rights violations. So that kind of deportation for people that are committing serious crime, I think it should still exist. But what should we separate is the de facto or all those migrants that are fleeing a situation that is very threatening to their life existence or lack of dignity, they have not committed such a serious crime, but just trying to improve their life. So for them, it should be a different process. If we look at the last 20, 30, 40 years history, the context of extreme poverty and violence that people are fleeing from, particularly from Central America, is still the effects of the Cold War area in which the U.S. has huge responsibility within the internal conflicts and the war that were created in those countries. On top of that, also 20 years of neoliberal policies that just exacerbated the inequality in the countries and exacerbated poverty. So all of that, it is related to also how the U.S. have managed the foreign policy to the Central American countries. So I think that we should see that in the process of the potential migrate to, towards a shared responsibility of how the U.S. is going to contribute to resolve those root causes that are still creating the situation that people had to flee to either protect their lives or pursuing a life that provides dignity. And that question of dignity is perhaps something that can generate compassion in all of us when we think about this often unattractive and coercive process through which countries seek to define and control their borders. People have always tried to get rid of foreign elements in their countries. Whoever it is at that time deems to be undesirable and for a range of political purposes. One thing that we have identified is that while we can talk about why people move and why people are removed, what we don't really know is connecting the dots, what happens to them afterwards, and why so many people do, in fact, remigrate. 
The Obama-era policies represented a culmination of a gradual but consistent effort to narrow its enforcement focus onto two key groups that were the target of deportation, deporting criminals and recent unauthorized border crossers. So now, as Trump removes protections from certain categories of non-criminal migrants inside the country, including DREAMers, DACA recipients, and holders of temporary protected status who have been granted papers in the recognition that they have fled danger and they do need protection, it leads the question about who should be the target of deportation policies. Are some immigrants more deportable than others? And what do we know of what it's like for those who are sent away and what life looks like for them upon return? My colleagues have given their two cents about this question and Santos has said that he also thinks deportation is okay when it comes to criminals. So I'll leave this question with you. Can you imagine your democracy without deportation? Or will we be forever in this dance between the inside and the out? And what does that dance look like for the cat and the mouse? If you like today's conversation, please share it with a friend, give us a rating or a review. You can send us your comments and questions on Twitter at the handle IIH underscore Harvard. This show was made possible by the Immigration Initiative at Harvard University. It was produced by Zirin Wang and Jennifer Alsop. Music by Zirin Wang. Special thanks to our guests, and thank you for tuning in.